Take your Bible with me, if you would, this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, kids, kindergarten through, through fifth grade, you guys can make your way to the back. Your teachers are waiting back there for you and would love to escort you to your classroom. If you don't have a copy of God's Word and you're in here right now, would you put your hand in the air? Larry has a few in the back. He'd love to bring you one and hand you one so that you can see the words that I'm about to read in front of you this morning. We're going to take a big chunk of text this morning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 31, and it would be very beneficial for you to have these in front of you this morning. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, and I'll read through verse 31. The Holy Spirit inspired these words written by Moses. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let there, be, let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to its kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is a big chunk of text, and so we're going to dive right in. Usually I ease you into the text, not, not to the day we're, we're on a mission this morning. A bunch of verses here. But before we get exploring the text, go back to those first couple of verses that we looked at last week in chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is our setup for Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 31. Last week, when we explored these two verses, we saw the objective truth about the beginning. What is the objective truth about the beginning? This isn't just a beginning, but it is the beginning. And God's first words in Scripture combat pluralism and relativism that our society is so steeped in. And then we saw, we're introduced to the main character, who is God himself. God himself is the main character in Scripture. This book isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about God. And not just any God, but the God that created everyone and who created everything. He is a creator God, and he created everything we would say ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. And we see God creates then the heavens and the earth, is what verse 1 tells us. He creates the heavens and the earth, and that the heavens and the earth are void and formless, it says. God is over the mass that he created, and it sits there as a blank canvas, ready to be shaped by an adept artist into a magnum opus. And if this is your first task this week, as we look at the next big chunk of verses here, the next 28, 29 verses here in Genesis chapter 1, we'll circle back around to this idea, but Don't fail to wonder at what's going on in this text. This becomes a little bit mm, familiar to us. And sometimes the familiarity of Genesis chapter 1 means that we don't wonder at what's going on here. When we work to understand this text, in any text, it's always good to interrogate or to ask specific questions about, about a text. And if you know anything about interviewing, we're going to interview this text. If we want to be better Bible readers, which we've said that we do in 2020, we want to be better Bible readers, or just a better reader in general, you need to learn to ask some very specific questions. We need to build these into everything that we read. 
you know these questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? And we answer these questions as we look at Genesis chapter 1. The who here in Genesis chapter 1 is God. The one true creator God. The what is happening is that he creates everything and everyone. When does it happen? The first three words. In the beginning. And where does it happen? In nothingness. And then, and then in somethingness. The why is implied here throughout. And we probably need to reference the rest of the, the, uh, the, the, the counsel of God to answer the why question. But implied here, we see that it had pleased God to display His goodness and creative nature by creating everything that exists. And then we ask, how? And here's much of where, the where we are this morning. And we're going to ask this question as we look at verses 3 through 31. But how is through His Word? Through God's Word, everything that exists came into existence. And so that's a simple exercise, but that should help us to wonder at this text. To look at this text and think really hard about it. How does nothing become something? And I don't think that we can answer that question. The absence of matter become matter. The absence of light give way to light. Or the absence of life give way to life. How do all of these things come into existence through a simple word? And if you're bored by Genesis 1 or reading Genesis 1 or the Bible in general, you need to wake up. Because this is meant to meant to engender wonder in all of us. The claims of Genesis 1 are audacious. They are audacious claims that our secular society hates and finds radically offensive. Secular societies' default claim is that there is no God or gods and that the universe came into existence through impersonal means. Primordial glue and big bangs and other stuff. All defying everything that we know about laws of thermodynamics and all of that stuff and somehow evolving into what we are now, somehow enlightened and functioning at a high, high degree. And really, ultimately, this just operates as a convenient excuse. If we don't wonder at a God who creates through His Word, this just creates a convenient excuse for us to do whatever we want. It helps us to ignore any possibility that there is a divine being to whom we may be accountable. This is exaggerated individualism of the Western world, and the Western world has found itself in it. And let's be honest, many of us this morning have found ourselves steeped in this individualism as well. And this is a direct result of our practical denial of Genesis chapter 1. And if, and if we descended from some primordial goo. No one can tell you how to spend your money. No one can hold you to an ethical standard. No one can keep you from beating your kids or your wife or keep you from having any sexual partner that you desire or hold you accountable to literally anything. At the heart of secular society, C.S. Lewis considered very clearly he wrote a poem called The Evolutionary Hymn, and the first stanza reads this, Lead us, evolution, lead us up the future's endless stair. 
Chop us, change us, prod us, weed us, for stagnation is despair. Groping, guessing, yet progressing, lead us nobody knows where. A society that practically denies Genesis chapter 1 is a society that is going nowhere. That literally has its grounds and roots in nothing except your own whims. Lewis's poem is intended to show us the absurdity of the default position of our society, but things have progressed even to a point of more absurdity since Lewis died in 1963. We don't have to get past Scripture's first 31 verses, first 31 verses to encounter radical disagreements, even within the church, over what this all means. And so, my goal this morning as we look at these verses is not to provide a look into each of these controversies, and there are many controversies here, but rather, rather to look at this text this morning with you and to discern what we can about what's contained. You cannot speak about the, uh, about any of these warped cultural ideas without first knowing very well what Scripture says. That's the goal. That's the goal this morning, is to understand very clearly what Scripture says about these things. What can we decipher with absolute certainty? What is the truth that's being communicated in Genesis chapter 1 to us this morning? That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. Truth is not relative. It is absolutely objective. If someone wants to argue with you as a believer, if you are in Christ, if someone wants to argue with you about the origins of the universe, you must first be able to say with definitive proof that comes only through the Word of God, Scripture, you must definitively say the truth of the origins of the universe is that a Creator God acting in accordance with His divine nature created everyone and everything through His creative Word. That is the first step. That step comes before any type of attempt to disprove another person's worldview. If we are not rooted in God's Word first, any attempt to disprove anything that comes after is complete folly. We as Christians are required to speak the truth even in the face of conflict. Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So friends, we must first abide in God's word and not the words of others, no matter how much of what they say, quote, makes sense, unquote. So again, this week, I want to go back to the top where we started. Don't fail to wonder at Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 31. Don't fail to wonder at this text. That's what this is meant to do for us, is to show us very clearly a creator God who has created everyone and everything through a simple word. Friends, that can't be boring to us. That can't for us. Nothing and then something. That means and it is meant to generate wonder. What is nothing really? Can you, get our, can you get your mind around that? We've never experienced nothingness. We've never experienced nothingness and you never will. There's always something there 
air, atmosphere, atmosphere, light waves, all of that. And then something, everything that you see with just a word. Again, I don't think we can get our heads around that. And that's meant to generate wonder in us. So the best way to do that I, that I know of is to consider the text itself. And I'm going to draw several just thoughts out of this, out of this text. There's a lot to explore here, but I'm going to draw several or make several notes from, from these handful of verses this morning. So the first thing to note as we go here, and as we want to be rooted heavily in God's Word before going anywhere else, the first thing that we want to note is that God speaks. That God speaks. And now I've already made note of this, but, but we need to consider exactly what that means and the implications of it for us. That God, that God speaks. At the beginning of each day of creation that we see notated here in Genesis chapter 1, we see in verse 3, and then in verse 6, and then in verse 9, and then in verse 11, and then in verse 14, and then in verse 20, and then in verse 24, and then in verse 26, and then in verse 28, and then finally the sum in summation in verse 31, we see a God who speaks. God said, and God said. God's creative act isn't done by a wave of the hand or some manipulation of some pre-existing medium, but the words, let there be. Let there be. And that means that God is a talking God. That's important. That's important for us. You may say, well, obviously, like, that's what, but that's important, and it has several very important implications for us. What does it mean for us that God chooses to speak. First thing that it means is that words are important. Again, very simple, a simple statement, but the reality of what we can glean from Genesis chapter 1. God speaks everything out of nothing. You and I can't do that. We know that. But that doesn't mean that our words are not dramatically important. Scripture is clear throughout the whole that our words have power. They either can help or they can harm. They can bless or they can curse. And as we move through Genesis chapter 1 and see that we are in fact image bearers of God, the way that we use our speech either reflects God clearly to the world or, or makes others question Him. We should see that the way we speak reflects a God who speaks. Consider with me several verses out of the Proverbs. Proverbs verse, or chapter 12, verse 18 says it like this. There is one whose rash words are like, a, like sword th thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue, our words, are compared to a sword. Not only a sword, though, but also to something that has medicinal qualities. Or consider Proverbs 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Or Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Or Proverbs 26.28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Or James 
3, 5 through 12. James writes this, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James's understanding of the tongue and its uses are rooted right here in Genesis chapter 1. They're found right here in a God who speaks everything into existence. And the use of our tongue reflects God. Would we be quick to use slander or criticize another or condemn them or complain about our situations if we saw our speech as a reflection of God's creative work in Genesis 1? My answer to that question, and it's a rhetorical one, is no. If we legitimately saw God's creative work being reflected through our own speech, we would be slow to slander, criticize, condemn, or complain. The second implication of seeing a God who speaks here in Genesis 1 is that God is poised to communicate truth about himself. So right here in Genesis chapter 1, when these words are penned, the first words of Scripture are penned, God is poised to demonstrate to people who he is through his word. Now, we have the great benefit as living with a closed canon with all of scripture in front of us this morning. We have the great benefit of seeing everything that God has communicated about himself in front of us this morning. From Genesis to Revelation, we know what God has said to be true about who he is, about who we are, and the world around us, and what he requires of us. So God speaking creation into existence is communicating truth about who he is. He is a creator God who brings chaos into order, who brings something out of nothing. But friends, this is another audacious claim that Scripture is making for us. That an infinite, eternal, matchless, set-apart, holy, ever-present, all-powerful God of the universe would bother to communicate with us. That's meant to generate wonder also. It points to the reality that God is a relational God, and that'll be our next implication, but that God is a relational God and has an intimate relationship with what he has created. So there's a couple of ways that God communicates who he is to us. First of all, what we can observe in general uh, through nature by observing a sunset or by observing a mountain. 
God also reveals himself, though, more specifically through actual words. So generally, he reveals himself, like Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where, Romans, uh, where Paul writes, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, accounted for here in Genesis chapter 1, in the things that have been made. So God reveals himself generally to us in creation. But again, more specifically, God uses actual words. God uses actual words which are recorded here in, in Scripture. This reality sets the foundation for what would be, to be believed to be true about the Bible. The Bible, God's divine revelation of himself to his people. The general revelation uh, that we see in creation is implied. We don't have to guess. We have God's specific words right in front of us. If you'd like an example, general revelation is like your spouse doing the dishes, you coming home from work and seeing evidence that your spouse has done work in the kitchen. But that doesn't give you a whole lot of information outside of someone just did the dishes. You wouldn't be able to determine if your spouse ate toast or caviar or a hot pocket for dinner just because you saw they did the dishes. You'd need to hear them say, I had a hot pocket for lunch. That's more specific or what we would call special revelation. God reveals who he is generally in creation and then specifically to us through his word. Now, Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 1 that no one can be saved through just observing, just observing God in creation. A specific word, a special word about who God is and his saving work of redemption through Jesus Christ, through in his word, is how we are, are saved. God reveals who he is generally in creation, specifically through his word. And the truth here that we see in Genesis 1 is that God loves to communicate who he is to us in creation and through Scripture because he is a relational God. He is relational. And that's our third implication this morning. God is a relational God. Since God communicates truth about himself, that means he is relational. In order to have intimacy of relationship, that, first or that second implication needs to come first. God communicates. If you're married, you know this is true. If you're not committed to communicating to communication in your marriage, you're in for a pretty bumpy ride. God sets the standard for relationship by speaking creation into existence. God is intimately involved in everything that is happening in his creation. Nothing is outside of his purview ever. He has an intimate relationship with creation because he spoke it into existence and his word is what holds it all together. The Bible refutes something else very clearly right here, the idea of deism. Now, maybe you've heard of deism. Deism is the, the understanding that God created the world and he stepped back from it and he just let everything go. Let everything go. Someone in, someone in, uh, in history who is a famous deist would be Thomas Jefferson. And this idea led him to assemble uh, the life and morals of Jesus Naz Nazareth. 
which were just stories about Jesus cut out of the Gospels and assembled based on what he liked. But notable omissions in the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth are anything that suggests or states very clearly that Jesus was God, that he performed any miracles, and of course there's no resurrection account. This is deism. But the Bible refutes this because a God who speaks like we see in Genesis 1 is a relational God who is intimately acquainted with everything in his creation. He made it and he holds it together through his divine word. Good news, friends, because God communicates to us both general revelation and special revelation. And this means that he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. Nothing can alter that reality. If you're here this morning, God did this and he did it. And to, and to say that he doesn't want to have a relationship with you or with us is to say that God is denying very specifically who he is. If God did not speak all things into existence, then you could claim that God doesn't care about you. But he did. And he cares about you deeply. So much that he would send his son into the world to die so that your relationship with him would be restored to its intended state. But we'll get to more of that when we get to Genesis chapter 3. So that's our first point this morning. God speaks. God speaks. The second thing that we see clearly in these verses this morning is that God orders. God orders. God speaks everything to existence, but he divinely orders it all. God is not a God of chaos. God is not a God of chaos. A void and formless world is a chaotic one. But God fills up the heavens and he fills up the earth. And the beauty that results is because it's orderly. God separates in the first day, he separates light from darkness. The waters from below the expanse and above it in the second day. The waters in dry land in the third day. God creates and then He orders. He designs and He orders days one through three, light and darkness, day and night, the sky and the earth in day two, the waters and dry land with vegetation in third day. And then in days four through six, He fills it up. He fills it all up. Day four, the sun and the moon and the stars go into the day and the night. Day five, the fish fill up the waters below, birds in the sky above. And day six, God creates the animals, livestock, the things that creep and crawl on the earth to dwell on the dry land. And then in day six, he also creates man and woman. And when Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sat down to write this, he didn't just say, God created everything. He could have easily just said, Genesis chapter one, God created everything. Moving on, Genesis chapter two. But he describes these days in the elements that God creates in the and orders in these ways to show us that God is a God of order. God knows exactly how things are to be best ordered. And this means that God knows what He is doing in your life also. The one who created and ordered everything so perfectly will not let your life descend into chaos. He's holding every atom in your body in place right now. 
He's ordered correctly everything because of his orderly character. Again, it would not behoove God to let your life descend into chaos because it would compromise the revelation of his divine character. The reason you don't melt into a pile of sludge on the ground right now is because God is God. He can't deny himself, and he's an orderly God. And maybe you're saying, but my life is chaos. You don't know. You don't know. My life is chaos. There's a difference between saying things are hard and that God has let you slip. Hardship, suffering, trials, and the like are not outside God's control. There isn't anything in your life that God is letting slip. You might not quite understand, but God isn't in the business of denying who he is. He acts in perfect step with who he is, and he is a God who perfectly orders all of that which he created. And that leads us to the next observation that we see. The declarations of goodness. God is God is good. God is good. Throughout this passage, again, God creates and he observes and declares through his word goodness. Verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and then in verse 31, he calls everything that he has made good. We see that Scripture always regards God as good. And in this instance, we see that a creator God calling his creation good necessitates his goodness. Now, that seems like circular reasoning, but he's God. A creator God calling his creation good necessitates his goodness. Consider Psalm 34.8. This is a familiar verse. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And you don't have to look much past the opening verses here of Scripture to establish God's goodness. A creator God then becomes the standard for goodness. And again, this should operate as a comfort for us. This should operate as a comfort for us. Friends, the, maybe the most loving thing I could tell you this morning is that you don't define goodness. You don't define goodness. God does. And what that means for us, this is the implication of that statement, what this means for us is that we can believe the promise of Romans 8.28. And you know that verse, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you define good, this is absolutely false. But if God defines good in his character, then this is absolutely true. God works for the good of his people, not just because he knows what is good or is capable of good, but because he defines good in his very being. And so, declarations of goodness therefore can flow freely from God. It didn't take God multiple tries to get everything right when he created the world. We don't have God created the heavens and earth and saw that it wasn't quite up to his standard, so he pitched it away and started over. That's not what we see here. He did everything and created everyone perfectly right out of the gate. Because he's good. The first draft is perfect, good, and it's the final draft. Not because of any external standard imposed on God, but
but simply because he is called or he called it good. And again, here's another truth that we need this week. Another truth that we need this week. Because if you're in Christ, there is not one thing, situation, or circumstance that God is not orchestrating for your good. If you're in, let me say that again. If you are in Christ, there is not one situation, circumstance that God is not orchestrating for your good. His perfect goodness is the basis for His declaration of goodness in creation in Genesis 1. And in His perfect goodness, He will not, He will not forget His promise to work all things for good for those who are His people. So this is the third note this morning that God is good. And we see that clearly here in our, in our text in Genesis chapter 1. The final thing that I want to point out, and we're going to, we're going to focus a little bit on this more when we get into Genesis chapter 2, but the fourth thing is that we actually see mankind introduced here for the first time in verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image. So again, if you want further evidence that, that, uh, that the Bible is not about you, verse 1 introduces God, and then verse 26 introduces man. And the funny thing about it is that man is never the actor until we get to chapter 3. He's not the primary actor. Even when man and woman are introduced, they are clearly included as six-day creation. We see very clearly that this is God's story. So, but before we move on, I want to draw three things, three things out of this text that are very important for us as we consider Genesis chapter 1 and as we move through the rest of Genesis chapter 1 through 11 regarding humanity. Again, we'll unpack some of this more when we get to chapter 2. But here are three important things that we see clearly here, and I'm going to give you them in the order that Scripture gives them to us. The first thing is that that humanity is created in God's image. Humanity is created in God's image. Now, again, a simple thing, but God says it very clearly in verse 26. Let us make man in our image. And then again in verse 27, this summary little poem we have, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So this means that we, you and I, are created to reflect God more clearly than anything else in creation. We are designed by God to reflect God more clearly than anything else in creation. We are created for the purpose of displaying God's glory to everyone and to everything. That is your purpose. That is my purpose. If you wonder what the will of God is for your life, it's answered here in Genesis chapter 1, to reflect God's divine character to the world around us. Mankind is set apart for this purpose. It's distinct from the rest of creation. And therefore, God's relationship with humanity, with mankind, is a unique one. God does not relate to us like he relates to the rest of creation because of the rest of creation does not get this pronouncement made over it. He relates to us by charging man and woman with a particular task. That particular task is the next thing that we learn about humanity. 
Humanity is created to have dominion over creation. Everything in creation is under mankind's care. And this is an important element of reflecting reflecting God. Everyone and everything belongs to and is accountable to God, including mankind. But God saw fit to make creation answer to a steward. That steward being man. And this obviously has implications for our world that gets this backwards very often. Creation is meant to be subject subject to our care. But we are also to take what God has made and use it wisely for living. We live in a world, again, sometimes that is functionally pantheistic. Pantheism says that everything in the universe is God or a God, including trees, rocks, polar bears, glaciers, everything. Christians reject that notion. We see that there's a clear hierarchy of creation given to us in Genesis chapter 1. God, everyone and everything is accountable to God, then man, and then everything else. We should be good stewards of polar bears and glaciers, but those who call for for man to stop exercising dominion over creation are those who worship creation itself rather than God. Paul warns of worshiping creation over the Creator in Romans chapter 1. And so, really what this comes down to is, is current political conversations are not necessarily what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us very clearly to not worship the creation over the Creator. But when we ignore God's command to steward and exercise dominion over creation, we fail to worship God. We fail to worship God. The very thing that we are designed for. So, should we do whatever we want to creation as a political statement? No. Should we be crippled by fear as a result of scientific data? No. We need to think about this issue biblically. How can we do what God created us to do in our relationship to the rest of creation? Now, my guess is that most of us don't think about that very often. Most of us don't think about that very often. We are called to care. We are also called to exercise dominion. Final thought that we learn here about mankind's introduction is that humanity is created male and female. You see it right there at the end of verse 27. Male and female, he created them. Again, much more about this in chapter 2. But the third thing the Bible says about humanity is that there are two genders. Not 58 options like Facebook says. This is God's design and creative order. Christians didn't make this up in the 1950s. This is here in Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning of things. Biological sex and gender are linked here in Genesis chapter 1 and never thought to be separate throughout all of Scripture. Objective truth. This is an idea that we will explore more thoroughly in the two weeks and two weeks when we get to Genesis chapter 2, like I said. But the absolute reality here, the absolute reality and the third thing that God says about humanity on the sixth day of creation, first created him in his image, 
Second, for the purpose of stewarding and having dominion over the rest of creation. And then third, God created male and female. But like I said, we'll work these ideas out more in a couple of weeks. So I want to give you a conclusion here. Just a couple of thoughts that we should walk away with this morning. The first is take time to wonder at this text. In conclusion, take time to wonder at this text. And this is where I said we'd circle back around to this. God made something, in fact, everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. Let's resolve not to be bored by this. Spend time here this week. Don't go anywhere else. Spend time right here and wonder at this text. What a stupid thing that we might grow cold to the idea that God could speak everything into existence out of nothing. The entire universe. Cultivating wonder in your mind. Start here in Genesis chapter 1. Mr. Rogers once said, I'm very concerned that our society is much more interested in information than wonder. I think when we approach Genesis chapter 1, we're oftentimes very much more interested in information than wonder. But I do think it's designed first and foremost to engender wonder in us. Wonder at what God has done in this creation account in Genesis chapter 1. The second thing I would say is take time this week to hear the God who speaks. And I'm not talking about audibly, but I'm talking about through His Word here in Scripture. Now, this is always going to be uh, an application point for us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God actively speaks to us through Scripture. God actively speaks to us through Scripture. The Bible that you hold in front of you is not dead. It is living. And it is active. Don't ignore it this week. God's creative work continues in your heart and in mine as we explore who He is in His Word. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, as we see here in Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God gives us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That happened through His Word. God is speaking to us this morning right here in the pages of Scripture. The third thing in conclusion Take time to see the gospel in this text. Take time to see the gospel in this text. A God who can create out of nothing. Who creates us in His image. Who orders everything perfectly with no error. This God can certainly put an end to the guilt, to the shame, to the condemnation that consume you as a result of the fact that you have violated his objective standards. Your sin, Isaiah chapter 1 says, our sin has made a separation between us and our God, but praise be to him, he has made a way in Jesus Christ. Through the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus, you can be born again, you can be made new, you can be brought to life out of death. 
If it gets warm enough this week, go for a walk. If it gets warm enough, go for a walk and marvel at creation. And then go to God's Word. Hear the God who speaks and soak in the goodness of the Gospel. And my prayer is that where we would rest this week is here. God can do anything. Nothing is outside of His ability. He created everyone and everything. Friends, let's make that clear to everyone around us. Let's pray.